0: Hey there, this is Brian Zahn. We'll get to the sermon in a moment, but I wanted to let you know that Water to Wine 2019 is coming up June 13, 14, and 15. What is it? Well, it's a gathering right here in St. Joseph for those who sense the falseness prevailing in Americanized Christianity and yearn for something better. It's a gathering for those who want to see the church rescued from fundamentalism, consumerism, and nationalism. It's a gathering for those asking Jesus to transform their spiritual life from water to wine. Perry and I, of course, will be there, but we've invited some of our close friends to come and also be presenters. People like Sarah Bessie, Jonathan Martin. Cheryl Bridges Johns, Rich Velodos, Joe Beach, and Derek Vreeland. We're all going to be there, and you can register now. You probably need to get on this and register now. And you do that at watertowinegathering.com. Watertowinegathering.com. Register for our Water to Wine Gathering this June here in St. Joseph. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Maybe on the day of Pentecost, maybe I'll say Holy Ghost. Kind of like that. So, Jesus begins in Galilee, you know. And he's preaching the gospel by announcing and enacting the kingdom of God. And he draws a following. Eventually, Jesus and his Galilean followers go to Jerusalem so that Jesus can become King, Messiah, Christ. And in Jerusalem, Jesus is enthroned upon a cross and crowned with thorns. He's crucified. He's buried. But on the third day, He's raised again. For 40 days, He appears to his disciples at various times and moments. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. This is not Jesus becoming an astronaut. This is Jesus not going off to outer space. This is Jesus being given all authority in heaven and on earth. So that in his ascension, Jesus also says, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. But he tells them now, stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. So these Galilean followers who now know that Jesus is raised are gathering in the upper room, about 120 of them. And they are praying and waiting and waiting and praying for 10 days. Everything's been prepared. They've heard what Jesus has to say and they understand what he's taught about the kingdom of God. They understand now that Jesus becomes king through crucifixion. They know that Jesus has been raised. They know that Jesus has ascended and now they're just praying and waiting and waiting and praying for 10 days. And then on the day of Pentecost, it all detonated. And by the end of that day, the church was born with 3,000 members. On that first day, 3,000 believed and were baptized and were added to the church. Not just, just, okay, uh, 3,000 have believed and now they're saved and so they'll go to heaven when they die. They didn't even talk like that at all. The first invitation of the first Christian sermon given by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, the invitation was, save yourself from this corrupt generation. By being added to God's alternative society, which is the church in 3,000 were added. And it wasn't that many years later that the world was turned upside down. Because of what detonated on the day of Pentecost. So, on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter quoted the prophet Joel to explain what was happening. Acts 2, verse 17. In the last days it will be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. On this Pentecost Sunday, I want to talk about the dreams I dream. That's what I want to do on this Pentecost Sunday. I want to talk about the dreams I dream. Now, in my choice to talk about the dreams I dream and talk about the dreams of... Well, it says old men will dream dreams, young men will see visions. This is not a concession to old age. I will resent that if you make that kind of assumption. Though I will admit that choosing dreams over visions may be somewhat related to staging in life, maybe. I know this much, that visions are... Visions are for when you're holding on tight and looking for direction. Dreams are more when you, you got a little looser grip, maybe you got less to lose. Visions are prose and need a plan. Dreams are poetry and only need to be dreamt. Visions are still a little bit tethered to what we think is impossible. Dreams are a portal into a world where all things are possible. We are free to dream of that which we have no idea how it could come to pass. Factor that in. I'll just tell you, you are free to dream of that which you have no idea how it would come to pass. Those who think dreams are a waste of time probably think the same thing of poetry and its cousin, prophecy. But they are very wrong. Every genuine breakthrough into newness begins as an impossible dream. Much of the Bible is poetry from those inspired dreamers that we call prophets. So today I preach in praise of the dreams commended by the prophet Joel and the apostle Peter. Now I'm not talking about daydreams, pipe dreams, idle dreams. I'm talking about in spirit I'm talking about spirit-inspired dreams endorsed by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. Without such dreams, we are imprisoned to what the principalities and powers dictate to us as that which is possible. and In their game of totalism, that they think that they are the only ones that can know what's possible. We have to break those shackles and it begins by dreaming dreams. So opening to the spirit who is the agency of all possibility, I've dreamed some dreams. All of my dreams are about the continuation of Christian faith through the church. So on the day of Pentecost, 2019, these are the dreams I dream. I dream of a church that is a city of refuge and a shelter from the storm. Mm, I dream of a church. That is a city of refuge and a shelter from the storm. That's what our churches need to be. Those wearied from the constant strain of caustic culture wars don't need more of the same when they go to church. (laughs) They need a refuge from that. They need a shelter from that. Uh, You might remember in the Old Testament, there were these cities of refuge that were appointed so that the set-upon and the accused could flee to refuge and the city would let them in and protect them from a mob that had become energized by the Satan and were attempting to stone these people to death. That's what the church needs to be. So that the set-upon and the accused can come and find refuge in the name of Jesus. I dream of that kind of church. I dream of a church that is a shelter from the storm for those that are burned out from exhaustion. Sometimes sometimes the way life is, it seems especially so in our present hour, it's just exhausting. And people can get burned out from exhaustion. I was burned out from exhaustion Blown out on the trail, poisoned in the bushes, buried in the hail, hunted like a crocodile, ravaged in the corn. Come in, the church said, we'll give you shelter from the storm. That's some poetry right there. Maybe some prophecy too. That's what I dream of. Jesus, on the day of his resurrection, in that upper room, where 50 days later, there's going to be the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, peace be with you. So that's the word that's to be in every church. And that's what I want to speak to you. I want to say, peace be with you. You've come to a place of peace. Let peace be upon you. Let peace enter you. Let, I just say it to you in the name of Jesus. Peace be with you. And because we are a peace church... I also dream of a church that is a pioneer in the way of peace and never again a chaplain to the masters of war. The greatest infidelity of the church has been to serve the masters of war. Constantine's terrible vision has become the church's horrible compromise. You know that story? It was in the year 312. 312. And there was yet another civil war going on in, in Rome, the way they do. Because, you know, that's, that's the way of the world, the way of the sword, the way of war. And there's a civil war. Two generals fighting over who's going to get to be Caesar. And there was a big battle, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312. And before the battle... Constantine, who's going to win the battle and become the emperor, says that he has a vision. And he sees the sign of the cross up in the sky with these words, In this sign you shall conquer. Of course, conquer is is a nice sanitized word for kill. In this sign, go out and kill your enemies. Kill, kill, kill. In this sign. And so he puts the sign of the cross upon the shields of his soldiers, and they go forth into war. It's an exercise in missing the point. And uh, Constantine wins the battle. He becomes emperor. And now the church is seduced to go for the ride. And the church... Instead of seeing the cross as the repudiation of war and the establishment of a new way to organize humanity around an axis of love expressed in forgiveness, they are seduced back into the old way of the world being organized around an axis of power enforced by violence. So this develops for 16 centuries. And then when the nation-states of Christendom, or Europe called for war the church just said yes yes this is the thing to do go to war and so christians killed christians by the millions christians killed christians i mean that's world war 1 what is world war 1 christians killing christians by the millions in the name of the greatness of our nation I mean, and World War I is the cause of World War II, and you tell me what the cause of World War I is. It's hubris. It's arrogance. It's the full flowering of what began under Constantine. Well, I dream of a church that is a pioneer in the way of peace and never again a chaplain to the masters of war. I dream of a church that excels in contemplative practices and contemplative stances. Instead of culture war Christians, we need contemplative Christians. We got these culture wars raging. What are we going to do? Participate? Go to war? Christian fighting Christian? Have a spiritual World war? War three? You know, in this room right now, in this room right now, at this, at this moment at which we speak, Well, I'm speaking, you're listening, but you know, rhetorically, at this moment, there are people seated here who are on opposite ends of certain culture war issues. Some are this and some are that. Some are for it, some are against it. Some are lean pretty hard R, some lean pretty hard D. So what should we do about it? Should we just find a way to all agree? Well, you can going to agree with me if you want. We can do it that way. I doubt that that's going to happen. So if that's not the way it's going to be, then what are we going to do? We're going to have to become contemplative. We can hold our positions as long as we can hold them in love. Hold them in love. Hold them in love and not vilify the other. Not not be seduced by the Satan so that you have to vilify the other as a two-dimensional rogue. Uh, Contemplatives have learned to hold all things together in love. The church has to become contemplative if it's going to be a shelter from the storm, if it's no longer going to be a chaplain of war. It has to become contemplative, but you don't become contemplative by just kind of wishing for it. It's those contemplative practices that lead to contemplative stances and so it's prayer school and it's sitting with Jesus and it's learning that that the golden rule is the narrow way that leads to life Jesus the way you would have others treat you that's how you have to treat them the way is narrow and the and the road is hard that leads to life and few are those that find it because you know any any joker can go through the broad way that leads to destruction The broad way that leads to destruction is just remaining reactive. I'm right. Everybody's wrong. I'm good. They're bad. Let's hate those that are not like me. And that's the broad road that leads to destruction. The church needs to be on the narrow road of the golden rule and saying, I'm going to contemplate what it would like to be another. Maybe I can understand where they're coming from. I may not not agree with them, but I'm going to love them sincerely, deeply. I dream of a church like that. I dream of a church... That is at home in God's good world instead of huddled anxiously at the departure gate. I uh, travel a lot and I'm in airplanes a lot, airports a lot. I got to tell you, the departure gate is not one of my favorite places on earth. <laughs> Everything's just tenuous. Just, is it, is it, did they call our flight yet? What, what, what group are we in, Perry? We're in Group A, no, we're in C. Dang, you're just departure gates are not—they're not places of human flourishing. You're indoors, you're cramped, you're—they're anxiety-inducing. You're just waiting, waiting, waiting to get in a tube and fly somewhere. I dream of a church that is at home in God's good world instead of huddled anxiously at the departure gate. The goal of the Christian life is not to go to heaven when you die. Sorry, that's not the goal. Now, when you die, you'll be with Jesus. It'll be good. Jesus will take care of you. But even that's not the goal. That's just, you know, hanging out in paradise in some form, disembodied, until the thing culminates in what we call resurrection. The blessed hope is not where we're going. The blessed hope is Jesus is coming. And there is a great culmination of all things. Christ shall come again. But there are also all of, I mean, there's the great second coming, but then there's the the little second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's a lot of comings of Jesus. Have you ever had Jesus come into a situation? Bring healing, bring grace, bring hope, bring forgiveness. That's what Christianity is more about. We're about bringing heaven to earth. Not trying to get out of here. Not trying to escape. Not trying to take our church to the moon. We're 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 going to be the church right here, loving God's good world, God's good creation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's a Bible verse. You may have heard it. That verse is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It is not God so hated the world that he killed his only begotten son. There's there's bad theology that, that works it like that. God hated the world so he killed his son so he could get over his meanness and forgive everybody. That's not what's going on there. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Christ and the church cooperating with Christ are involved in a project to redeem, to salvage, to rescue God's good world. So I dream of a church that's at home in God's good world and not huddled anxiously at the departure gate. I dream of a church where faith and science are not at odds. Now, maybe maybe that's not your dream. Well, this is my dream. This is my dream. I dream of a church where faith and science are not at odds. Why? Not at odds. Well, several reasons, but one is because I don't know of a single peer reviewed scientific theory that is any threat to Christian faith. I don't know of any of them. All truth is God's truth. And seeking to understand God's truth by any means is a holy endeavor. Whether you're doing it with a Bible or a telescope. Seeking to understand the truth of God's good creation is a holy endeavor. And there are consequences to pretending you're a scientist when you're not. In 1543, a guy who was a Christian, by the name of Copernicus, came up with a wild idea. He said, "I know, I know, I know, I know. It looks like the sun rises in the east, sets in the west. It happens every day. We're standing right here. We're not moving. We're solid. We're stable. We're not moving at all. And the sun rises, travels across the science. rises in the east, and travels across, sets in the west." I know that that's what it looks like. I know that's what we've always believed. But you know what? I've been thinking about it. And I've been doing some study and some observations and some mathematics are involved. And guess what I have found out? It's not the sun that's in motion. It's we who are in motion. The church got upset about that. And it took them a while, but by, by 1610, that's kind of late in the game, actually. In 1610, they said, that's a heresy. That's a heresy because the Bible talks about the sun rising and said, okay, yes, the Bible uses metaphorical language, but you know, it turns out that at the center of the solar system is not the earth, but the sun. The sun rotates and turns, and that's why you get days and changes and months and seasons and all of that, and some very, very clever people figured it out. But the church said, well, that's not the way we've been reading our Bible, so that must be wrong. And we call it a heresy. And in 1616, I mean, Copernicus had the good luck of dying the year that he came up with his theory, so they couldn't persecute him. (laughs) But in 1616, this, this theory was endorsed in advance by a guy named Galileo. And they put him on trial. And they found him Guilty. And they put his writings under the ban, locked it up, put him on trial, and they would have executed him, but he capitulated. And I'm sure with his fingers crossed, yeah, okay, the earth's at the center of the universe, okay. But see, that's embarrassing. Now We look back on that and go, yikes, why did we do that? So I dream of a church where faith and science are not at all. There's no need for it. It's a fool's errand. Don't do it. I dream of a church that is conservative because there are wisdom traditions worth preserving. I have deep respect for what the first Christians believed, did, and practiced because we don't get to make Christianity up. It's a received faith, it's an inherited religion, tradition, practice, belief system. So I dream of a church that's rooted deeply in our great tradition. I don't want a church that's rootless. I don't want a church that just made it all up 50 years ago. I need a church that is older than the charismatic movement, older than the Protestant movement. I need a church that goes all the way back. And I want to. I want to have. So, so I dream of a church that is that is conserving things, conserving. It's conserving. That's conservative. Conserving things that are genuine treasures. We don't just get rid of everything. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I mean, I know it's true. If traditions weren't ever challenged, we'd still be living in caves. But if we just challenge every tradition, we'll be back in the caves. And so. I dream of a church that is conservative because there's wisdom, traditions worth preserving. But Jesus said, every scribe, that is every Bible student, that's what a scribe is, essentially. Every scribe instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things old and things new. And so I also dream of a church that is progressive because the journey is ongoing. I can hold those two things together. If you can't, you need to become more contemplative. You're still a reactive. I dream of a church that is conservative. There are people that, they just hear that word conservative, and they're like, "Mm." I dream of a church that is conservative. Because there are wisdom traditions worth preserving. But I also dream of a church that is progressive. And then the other, the other side of the room is like, oh, you said you said progressive. And that's just code for liberal. And I dream of a church that is conservative. Because there are wisdom traditions worth preserving. I dream of a church that is progressive because the journey is ongoing. All that needs to be said has not yet been said. Jesus said so. Jesus said in the upper room discourse in John 16, he said, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't handle them right now. You cannot bear them right now, but that's what I mean. I have many things think of it. Jesus is speaking to his apostles. And he says, guys, I have a lot more to say to you, but you can't handle it right now. I know that feeling. I have a lot more to say, but I can't say it to you right now because you're not ready to hear it. You can't handle it. Freak you out too bad. But when the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit will guide you into all truth. So Jesus didn't say all that needed to be said. Jesus said what they could handle. But he said the Spirit will come. and That's what we're celebrating and remembering today on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit will come and guide you into all truth. I'll give you an example. I mean, it took a long time. It took a good long while for the church to learn about some new things. One example would be the abolition of slavery. I think everyone in this room, dear Lord, I pray this is the case, everyone in this room knows that the only acceptable Christian ethical stance regarding slavery is, it must be abolished, it must be ended. In whatever form it exists, do away with it. But this was not what the church believed for a long time, because it's not what the Bible taught. The Bible does not condemn slavery as an institution in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. And so people just accepted it as part of the fabric of social structure that is unalterable. Until eventually, the church, as a faith, rooted in the soil of Scripture, was able to grow some new boughs and limbs on this mighty tree, this mighty oak that is the Christian faith. And it grew some boughs and limbs of abolition. See, that's why you have to also dream of a church that is progressive because the journey is ongoing and some things need to get grown. I dream of a church that is a viable viable alternative to soulless secularism. Secularism is a complicated thing. I'm not using that in a culture war term. I'm using that in an analytical, philosophical way. But secularism is basically the modern idea that God is either absent or irrelevant in our lives. Either God doesn't exist, or God is, may exist, but He's not uh, present, or God is at least irrelevant and nothing, in the, in the philosophy of secularism, nothing is really sacred. Nothing is really sacred. Nothing is, the, the technical term would be ontologically sacred. That is in its core of its being. It's not, secularism is that world of disillusioned words bark as human gods aim for their mark and make everything from toy guns that spark to flesh-colored Christ that glow in the dark. It's easy to see without looking too far. That not much is really sacred. That's secularism. The problem with that, and there's a lot of problems, is we're still going to gravitate toward terms of value and rights. It's a, it's a way of bestowing the sacred upon something. But the way it's done in a secular society is by democracies or dictators. It's what they say is sacred. And that always ultimately leads to a dark abyss. No, the church says something other. They say the word became flesh, you know. The logos of God, the logic of God, the love of God, God's self reflection upon God's own self became flesh. And that flesh was sacred flesh. It was ontologically sacred. And we have other sacred things among us. We have a sacred text. It's sacred because it points us to that sacred one who is Jesus. And when we gather together here, it's sacred. And when we sing our songs and pray our prayers, it's sacred. And in a little bit, we'll come to this table and we will find something sacred a participation in the body and blood of Jesus. We cannot flourish as human beings pretending that we can live our lives in a way where God is irrelevant, distant, and unreachable. If we're going to flourish in our soul, we must maintain a connection with the source of all being and life. So I dream of a church that is a viable alternative to soulless secularism. I dream of a church where my grandchildren's grandchildren learn to love and follow Jesus. I got my grandchildren, you know, Jude and Finn and Evie and... Liam and Mercy and Hope and Pax. Pax spent a night in the hospital this week. But he's okay now. He's back on the mend. Had a little bit of, had a little bit of bronchitis that got bad. But I have my seven grandchildren. And uh, I'm thinking about my grandchildren's grandchildren. You see, I'm playing the long game. I'm not just in this for me. Too, too, too many... Too many of these people that say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't need the church. I don't need the church. Well, maybe your grandchildren's grandchildren need the church. Yeah. You know, the church in one way or another gave you Jesus. And, All right, I got Jesus. Now I'm done with the churches. Kick the church to the curb. Well, how's your grandchildren's grandchildren going to hear about Jesus? Don't you care about them? My grandchildren's grandchildren. Another way of saying that is my great-great-grandchildren, if I figured that out right. I think that's how that works. Wouldn't that be right? Grandchildren, and then great great. Okay. My grandchildren's grandchildren, that would be my great great grandchildren. My great great grandchildren may never know my name. That's a tragedy. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that, that's humbling. It's like, that's humbling. I mean, how many of you know the names of your great great grandparents? Perry does, okay. But Perry's very special. Some of you do. How many of you, I, I think I had to figure it out. How many of you, right now, just if you're put upon right now, would have a hard time coming up with the name of the great great grandparent on your paternal side? Your great great grandfather. How many of you would have a hard time coming up with his name right now? Well, there's more than one, but you know, I understand how. It, how many of you had a hard time just even coming up with one? Yeah. So, you know, it could be that my grandchildren's grandchildren will never know of me, but I want to leave them a gift anyway. I'll leave them a gift even if they don't know who gave it. So I dream of a church where my grandchildren's grandchildren learn to love and follow Jesus. I dream that maybe we're still the early church. Whoo! That's freaky. I mean, we just read in our... Gospel portion today, Peter says, this is what was prophesied by Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days. Pour out my spirit. But the last days can go on a long while. Maybe we're still the early church. You don't know. It's just a dream. The church of 10,019 would call us the early church. Yeah, back 8,000 years ago, they were the early church. So I dream that the church of the distant future will kindly forgive our faults, for we too are people of our time. We aren't a perfect church. We won't be a perfect church. We can't be a perfect church. But for now, it's enough to be a faithful church. And finally, I dream of a church in the distant future with technology I can't imagine, but still practicing sacraments I immediately recognize. I dream of a church in the distant future. I won't even try to imagine their technology It would be like trying to ask people in the year 500 to imagine the internet and smartphones and air travel and space exploration and on and on and on. I can't imagine the technology of the church of the distant future, but I can imagine them practicing sacraments that I go, I know exactly what that is. That's Holy Communion. That's somebody being baptized. I know what that is. And so today... We come to Jesus. We come to him by coming to Jesus in bread and wine because he's with us always even to the end of the age and he's with us in in many ways but this is one way that Jesus is with us in the bread, in the wine. We participate in the bread, in the wine and we participate in the body and blood of Jesus. So come to Jesus, come to his forgiveness, come to his mercy, come to his grace, come to his healing, come to his salvation but come to Jesus. Amen and amen. Stand with me. And we'll confess together our ancient Christian faith that I believe, should the Lord tarry, as they used to say, that the church in 10,019 will still be confessing. Confess with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and for those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. Amen.